I'm talking? Oh, gosh. Now i got to whisper. Okay. <laughs> we will see how this goes, everyone. A long time ago, when I was a teenager, back in the year 1998, there was a movie released that presented a hyper-realistic view of the storming of Omaha Beach on June 6, 1944, and the events that followed. It's a movie called Saving Private Ryan. It is an incredible and at times deeply disturbing movie that follows a man named Captain William and his team of eight as they try to search and find the aforementioned Private Ryan. And Miller is portrayed as a tough-as-nails military man. And throughout the whole movie, everyone tries to figure out what his past life was. Shrouded in mystery, never tells anyone. There's a pool that people keep contributing to to try and figure out when he's finally going to reveal it. And they just speculate the whole time, you know, everyone here has a mother except for Captain Miller. There's no way a man like him was born. He was grown in a vat. Well, going into the final batter, battle, just before this last amazing scene, emotions are high. There's a guy trying to desert. He's just furious about everything that happened. It seems like everything's falling apart. And Captain Miller finally reveals his dark, secret past. Captain Miller was an English teacher and a volunteer baseball coach. And when you find this out, so much of the movie about what he says really clicks into place. When you hear him correcting some quote from an English uh, a famous writer, this isn't some odd quirk where Captain Miller, this tough-as-nails captain, just happens to know about this famous author. This was a core part of who he was. Well, tonight, Matthew, through the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to address yet another issue that his Jewish readers were actively struggling with at this time, concerning who the Messiah is. So let's go and read our passage. We are in Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 32. And we're going to read to the end of Matthew 15. It says, Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. I'm in verse 35. Sorry, I should have given you a chance to catch up. And directing the crowds to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And when they took it, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending, the crowds on, or sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Megadon. All right, who remembers what's going on in chapter 15 up to this point? Like it started with a confrontation between Jesus and who else? I mean, it's kind of a pretty easy one. You say there's a confrontation between Jesus and not the disciples, 
the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees had made this long trek up to confront Jesus about why aren't the disciples following our traditions, our man-made traditions. And Jesus' response to them is, why are your man-made traditions keeping you from following God's law? So immediately following Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees and the scribes, uh, that it's not what you eat that defiles you, because that's what they're concerned about. That your disciples aren't doing this big ceremony to wash their hands, it's going to defile them. Jesus says, no, it's not what you put into your stomach that defiles you. It's what comes out of your mouth, because what comes out of your mouth is what's inside your heart. And in verse 19 of Matthew 15, Jesus gives a short list of some of the evil thoughts that come out of a person's heart. Things like murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witnessing, and slandering. And we go immediately from that rebuke to Jesus' interactions with the Canaanite woman. And by the end of their interaction between the Canaanite woman and Jesus, what is coming out of this woman's heart? What does her, her words and her actions reveal about what's inside her heart? Yes. I say a little bit louder. Yes, that she actually has faith. And then we go from that to Jesus', Jesus healing uh, the crowds, the great crowds that come to him. And verse 30 tells us what about the great crowds of people, or, or about the end, of, excuse me, the end of verse 31 tells us what's coming from these great crowds of people's hearts. What do they do at the end of verse 31 of Matthew chapter 15? If you're looking at me, I'm just going to call on you because I assume you know what it is. If you're looking down, I'm going to call on you because I'm assuming you saw it. So you, you, you might as well just raise your hand and tell me. In the verse 31, what do they do? Yes, Nico. They glorify God. So on, or so on the one hand, we've seen this increasing level of rejection by the Israelites. And on the other hand, we've seen the stark contrast where the Gentiles praise and glorify God as we come to this last section in Matthew chapter 15 that focuses on the Gentiles where Jesus feeds them, the feeding of the 4,000 men. And, and we do know that this is a Gentile crowd for a couple reasons. Uh, first of all, we know from just the surrounding passages that after Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees, he leaves that region, he goes up to Tyre and Sidon, and then he comes back down to a, another region around the Sea of Galilee, Galilee that was predominantly a Gentile region. Uh, and the second Think reason we know this is when we get down to the end of the passage, you know, in English, it says basket, basket. Uh, we, we know it's some sort of container for it. But in Hebrew, the word they use is different than the word they used for baskets back in chapter 14. So in chapter 14, they use this word that refers to a kosher basket, things that would only carry kosher things because they were Jewish population. But here in chapter 15, they use a very generic word. And I know that seems like a really weird distinction to make, like, what if Matthew just used a generic word for baskets? But it's actually important, because remember, who was Matthew written to? What, what audience? Yes. It was, yeah, it's a Jewish audience. And so writing to a Jewish audience, he uses these two different words, because the Jewish audience absolutely would have understood that by not using this kosher basket and gathering up this leftover food, the only people who would have been willing to eat from this non-kosher basket would have been Gentiles. So he is absolutely making the case that this is a Gentile crowd that is uh, involved in chapter 15. 
Now, I know I've kind of given away the answer to what I'm about to ask, so this is a bit of freebie. If you don't like answering, this is, this is the time to answer, because I've already I've kind of told you it by accident. Uh, we have just read a passage recently that's pretty similar to what we're about to read. Like, does anyone know the passage? Yeah, we're about to read 4,000 people being miraculously fed. Does that remind you of something else? They recently, Alejandro, thought about it. Yes, sir. Yeah, the feeding of the 5,000. There you go. So do you think that I could just play Alejandro's lesson? Like, I, I don't need to do anything tonight. I can just get the recording out, put it in front of the microphone, sit down. I'm good. Thank you, everyone. Enjoy my lesson of Alejandro's lesson. Like, do you think I could do that? Because there's a lot of similarities between these two lessons, right? Or these two passages. In both, both cases, you have a group of people that come to Jesus for healing. And at the end of the day, Jesus has compassion on them because they are hungry. And so he miraculously feeds them. They go home. Pretty similar? Do you think, do you think I need to do anything tonight? Do you think I'm just going to kind of repeat what Alejandro said? No! <laughs> nice spots. You guys are saying yes. Thank you. Oh, thank you. That, uh, I, I love that uh, you did that. Thank you. Uh, absolutely not. Whenever you come to any passage in the Bible, one of the questions you need to ask yourself is, why did God include this passage? And there is absolutely an important reason as to why God included this passage just 45 verses from each other. Like, literally, if you count up the verses, from the time the feeding of the 5,000 ends, the time the feeding of the 4,000 begins, there are a short 45 verses. Now, a lot of times when you come to a passage and you say, why did God include this? It's pretty obvious, right? Like, you have the Psalms. It's pretty obvious that their point was to be used in congregational singing with the Israelites. They were songs of praise, songs where they ascribe glory to God, where they talk about His might and His power and the benefits of worshiping Him. Uh, Proverbs, pretty obvious what they're there for. In fact, He lays it out for them so that He can become wise. Uh, things like the prophets. You read the prophets. Okay, we, we know why they're here. They're here because Jesus is warning the people about the consequences of disobedience and if, what's going to happen if they don't turn away, or because they have gotten into such a pattern of sin, this is absolutely what's coming. I am warning you what's coming, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel. After your punishment, we will be restored to fellowship again. Other times, it's less clear why God included a specific passage. Like, if you just do a very surface-level reading, like here in Matthew 15, you may go, why did we just copy and paste these two miracles? Like, you, you think at least there'd be more space between them, so maybe you forgot about the last one. And in that case, you need to study deeply. You need to open a commentary, see what the people say about it, uh, someone that you can trust, or you need to go to uh, a place that you can trust online, like the archives from Northway, or Countryside, or Grace Community Baptist out in California. Uh, these are all good places where you can trust the teacher to have accurately preached the Word of God. And you go there and say, what is going on with this passage? Maybe I can get some more information. Well, the purpose of the inclusion of the feeding of the 4,000 here in Matthew 15 is going to be our theme for tonight's lesson. And that is, Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews and the Gentiles. Jesus is the Messiah of both the Jews and the Gentiles. And we're going to see this idea built over three different sections. First, we're going to see Jesus' Jesus's abundant compassion. 
Then we're going to see the disciples' blatant disbelief. And finally, we'll see Jesus' overflowing provision. So that's Jesus' abundant compassion, the disciples' blatant disbelief, and Jesus' overflowing provision. So let's take a look at Jesus' abundant compassion. In verse 32 it says, Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Now I want to know here, who here has ever been really, really hungry? Yeah? I mean, like, I mean, like it's, oh, it's starting to hurt kind of level of pain. Anyone with low blood sugar, you kind of get a little, little weak, a little hangry if you don't get that food. Yeah? I, I've, had, I've had a few times when I've made mistakes playing out my day for work and I didn't bring food because I thought we'd be going out to eat, and then we didn't go out to eat, and we worked late. And so, you know, I, I got to the end of the day, and I was, I was getting real hungry. Uh, I've had one time where I, I went out for a 40-mile bike ride, and I forgot to pack food. And so by the end of the ride, I was physically in pain from hunger, but I wasn't at the point where I would fall over faint. Like, I was extremely hungry. My body was saying, I need to put some food in me. But I wasn't to the point where I was in danger of passing out, even if I had to walk several, several more miles at that point. So I think for the vast majority of us, we haven't been in the position that we're reading about tonight. I, I think there may have been, there may be people here tonight where we've missed meals. Yeah? Maybe one, maybe two, maybe, maybe someone here tonight, one of the adults. Even in position where you just missed a whole day's worth of meals, maybe because you're doing this intermittent fasting nonsense, maybe because uh, your life circumstances have been in a position where you haven't been able to, to have food. It happens. But the people with Jesus have been with him for three continuous days, it says. And whatever food they brought with them is long gone. There is only one person left who has any food on him at this point. They are hungry to the point that simply walking home represents a clear and present danger to their health. And there's two really amazing things I want you to think about with this verse. First of all, I want you to think about the faith that we're seeing in the Gentiles. Why did they first come to Jesus? What, is it, what does it tell us? This wasn't what we taught. We haven't gone over this tonight. We went over this with Mr. Preston on Sunday. Uh, verses 31 32, I believe it was. Maybe after Sunday. Why did the people, why did the Gentiles come to Jesus in the first place? Yes. They wanted to be healed. They wanted to be healed. We see this also in Matthew 14. They come to be healed and they stick around for a little bit. And then Jesus feeds them. But here we find out that they've been with him for three days. Think about that. They came to be healed and they were so thankful that he healed them that they wanted to remain close to him for the next three days. Often, as flawed humans, I feel like, at least I, I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to pray while things are bad. I think that's fair to say we all turn to Jesus when times are bad. We pray when we're sick, when we know someone who's sick. We pray when someone in our family needs a new job, when we need a new home, when we're having drama with our friends. 
we turn to God during those times. And it's good. It's good that we pray during those times, right? God tells us boldly, approach the throne of God. In all things, bring your requests before God with thanksgiving. These are good things to do. The problem is, once our immediate need is taken care of, oftentimes we just stop praying, don't we? Like, we, we don't even bother saying thank you sometimes. Thank you, God, for answering this prayer that has been weighing on my heart to the point that I couldn't sleep at night. I don't even thank Him for that. It's as soon as it's good. Thanks, we're done. It, it's a bad tendency. We, we get in the habit of, I feel like, sometimes. But here we see the people in the crowd, after their immediate need was met, they joyfully remained to be near Jesus. And the second thing I want you to think about from this verse is, did Jesus have to do anything for the crowds at this point? Like, would it have been morally wrong of Jesus to send them home knowing that they could have fainted on the way? What do you think? No? Everyone think the same? Anyone think differently? Rip. Well, no. So it, it would not have been morally wrong for Jesus to send people home. Think about this. God is not morally wrong to allow people to starve to death today. Think about this for a minute. Is God everywhere? Yes. Does it matter if we can see him or not? No. God is uh, omnipresent. He is everywhere. Is God powerful enough to provide immediately enough food for someone's entire lifetime if they are dying of starvation? Yes, he is. And he is omnipotent. In the same way that it is not morally wrong or sinful for God right now to be allowing people to starve to death, it would not have been morally wrong or sinful for Jesus to send people home instead of what we are about to see him do. And this is the first important step Matthew is making here in this passage, demonstrating that Jesus is the Messiah of both the Gentiles and the Jews. Just as Jesus had compassion on the Jewish people in Matthew chapter 14, we see that Jesus is having compassion on the Gentiles here in Matthew chapter 15 in equal measure. But why do you think, why do you think Jesus needed to show that he was compassionate to the Gentiles? Like, why does it matter? Why, why would that be at all important in proving that Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews and the Gentiles? I want you to think about the attitude of the Israelite people during Jesus' time. Uh, they were extremely discriminatory towards Gentiles. Uh, you remember several, several weeks ago, many months now, we went to Herod's family tree. We talked about how uh, one of the Herods really, really tried to do a lot of great things for the Jewish people, but he was always kept at arm's length. Even though he converted Judaism, they always kept him at arm's length because he was a Gentile. Uh, but we also see this reflected, this discrimination reflected in the very temple that he built, that Herod built. There are four different courts in this huge temple Herod built. He had the innermost court, and that was the court of the priests. It's where the priests were allowed to go and do all the sacrifices and the other things pertaining to regular day-to-day maintenance of the temple. Coming out from there, you had the court of Israel. And they said, oh, okay, well, this is where the Israel people were allowed to go. No. It's where the Israel men were allowed to go. 
after that court, you keep going outside the temple. So you got the main area. This is where the main uh, sacrifice happened. You go a little bit out. You have where the men are allowed to be. You go a little bit farther out. This is where the Israelite women are allowed to be. And then you leave the door. You walk down the corner, a couple blocks away. Okay, not that far. But you, you had to leave the temple proper, and you had this second outside wall that surrounded the temple grounds. And this was called the Court of the Gentiles. And this is the furthest that a Gentile man was allowed to go, or a Gentile woman, anyone Gentile. And this was the problem when we get to Acts, whenever that happens, when Paul brings in the Jewish men to be cleansed, to go through the, the, the ceremonial process. Uh, he goes into the court of Israel, and they think that he brought in these Gentile men. This is why it was such a big deal. Gentile people, you weren't allowed in the temple. Like, you were allowed on the grounds, but you weren't allowed to go into the main door to worship. So Jesus first had to establish this baseline truth that he was equally compassionate because there was this discrimination that happened. And, and remember, it, in the Old Testament, this division never happened. This was not the kosher part of the temple. Uh, God never intended for it to be men are allowed here, women are allowed here, and outsiders go over there. It was always supposed to be everyone's allowed to come. There were special areas for just the priests, just the holy place and the holy of holies, but uh, it was never supposed to be segregated like this. So with that established, that Jesus has an equal amount of compassion to the Israelites and the Gentile peoples, we move to the next thing God wanted to use to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah of both. And that was to use the disciples' blatant disbelief. Uh, go ahead and look at Matthew 15, verses 33 and 34. It says, And the disciples said to him, that's Jesus, Where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. Now, does there seem to be anything odd in the disciples' response here? Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to keep your hands down. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah. I, I mean, whenever I read this, the way the disciples respond, it, it kind of surprises me. It really wouldn't have been that long ago that the feeding of the 5,000 happened. We look at it, and if you want to, in a, in a single reading, you could go straight from 14 to 15. That's not that many verses. Uh, if you're reading one chapter a day, you would have read about it a day ago. But even for the disciples, uh, from the timeline that we can see, this wouldn't have been a huge amount of time between these two events. Uh, yet here, they are completely dumbfounded as to how Jesus could possibly be able to provide food for these people, less people even, than last time. So what's going on with the disciples? Well, there's, there's a couple possibilities. One possibility is actually found in John chapter 6. So in, in John's account of the feeding of the 5,000, you have where he, he feeds everyone, and then they depart. He, he makes everyone leave because they are ready to forcibly make him Messiah at this point. And you have the walking on the water, and he gets on the boat, and immediately they're in Gennesaret. Excuse me, bless me. Um, I, I don't know. You guys know I, I pronounce things like a southerner. Gennesaret. Uh, they're in this town. And the people come and they find him. 
And, and they, they find out, oh, there's only one boat here. This is what Jesus came in on. They were excited to see him, but they weren't excited because they wanted to have their physical ailments fixed. They weren't excited to be healed. They weren't excited because they wanted him to teach them. They were excited because they wanted a free meal. And Jesus recognizes this, and he rebukes them. And he goes into this, uh, this narrative where he talks about how he is the bread of life. And that he is the bread that came down from heaven. And there's this further exchange. He talks about, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. A lot of people are grossed out by this. They misunderstand what he's trying to say. And the people leave him. And not only do the people who are in that town leave him, but additionally, a lot of his own followers leave him. And as a result, it's possible that with such a big event, where so many of the followers of Jesus leave Jesus, that disciples got the wrong idea, as the disciples do. Uh, they could have taken this entire exchange and gone, okay, Jesus is never, ever again going to feed giant crowds. So we have this exchange now in Matthew 15, a couple of weeks, maybe a month later, and they say, well, how are you going to feed these people? Because you told us. You told us you're not going to feed anyone. That's a possibility, but I, I think there's two more likely things going on here. Uh, the first, what we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about what I think is going on in the disciples' hearts based on this passage, the flow of things in the disciples' response. And the second thing is, we're going to talk about what their doubt is meant to highlight to the reader. Does this make sense? There's two different things going on here. Like, have any of y'all read a story where you get to see what a character is thinking? But the point isn't what they're thinking. The point is what you're supposed to interpret from what they're thinking. Like, like I, I, know that's how, I know that's an option. Let me give you a solid example. We got any C.S. Lewis fans in here? Chronicles of Narnia? Yeah. No one? Really? Look, anyone listening to this later, I don't know why everyone in here hates C.S. Lewis. But, uh, but I don't. Okay, yeah, okay, there's a lot of hands. Put them down. Put them down. How many people remember in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader? Eustace finds the dragon. And the dragon dies. And then Eustace gets the gold for himself, lies down on it, and begins to think dragonish thoughts. Is the point of us seeing that Eustace is thinking dragonish thoughts, is that the whole point of it? Or, or is there a bigger point to understand about, why, uh, about what's going on here? Eustace is thinking something, and we're supposed to understand a greater truth because of what Eustace is thinking. Does that make sense? So this is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about what the disciples are thinking, and then we're going to talk about how Jesus is using this to instruct Matthew about a larger point that he wants the readers to understand. So let's talk about what's going on in the disciples' hearts. Based on how the disciples are responding, I think this is demonstrating that they had a blatant disbelief that Jesus could do anything. Uh, so I, I don't think they're thinking, oh, there's this exchange where Jesus told people he's the bread of life and people left him and he's never feeding people again. I, I don't think that's what's going on here. I think they just forgot. I, I think that they had a, a disbelief that he could do anything, and as a result, they didn't make the connection. They, they absolutely didn't realize that what's going on right now is identical to what was going on back then. Like, we get the benefit of only having 45 verses between these two events. And we, we can see the narrative that God has perfectly crafted for us to follow. They didn't get this. This was just their real, real life playing out day by day by day. And I think they failed to make the connection. 
And this wouldn't be the first time we see people kind of forgetting immediately God's amazing power. Like if you turn back, you you don't need to, but if you turn back to Exodus 15, uh, God had just done amazing, powerful miracles in Egypt, right? There were ten plagues culminated in the death of the firstborn of every Egyptian. An angel of death came through, established a holiday that they follow to this day. It was a little bit. I think you guys may have heard about it. So they get across the Red Sea, and they praise God for his power. And then we're told three days later, they immediately start to complain. They say there's no water for us. Despite seeing God's amazing power, they immediately forget that he has any power at all. And they say, God can't do anything. We're dead. Moses, why'd you do this to us? And what's more, is a month down the road, they're right back to the same mindset. Even though God is providing them water, now they're out of food. And they actually have the gall to say, I wish I was back in Egypt where all they did was oppress and murder us. But at least we had food. And and also, their mindset, it it shows that not only did they think that God wasn't powerful enough to buy water and food, they also thought that God was too stupid to bring them along a safe path. Because who's leading them at this point? I don't know. It wasn't Moses. Yeah. A cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God himself was leading them. And they're saying, well, we serve such a weak God that he can't give us water. And we serve such a stupid God that he can't bring us along a path that would have water. They thought they were serving a weak and ineffectual God. I think that's what's going on here with the disciples. Despite seeing a constant reminder of his power, they forgot how powerful Jesus is and blatantly doubted his ability to do anything in this situation. The second thing going on here is I think God is using their blatant disbelief to address the reader's doubt as well. Remember that this passage is coming sandwiched between two passages of Israel's rejection of the Messiah. So, just imagine that you are an Israelite reader. It's the first time you read the book. You see the rejection of Israel going on, and Jesus comes to this Canaanite woman. And you're like, okay, this is, this is the good interaction. The Canaanite woman, she debases herself. She says, I am but a dog before you. Yes, that's a Gentile. Absolutely, we're on board. Then you have the Messiah healing the sick. And this may have been a stumbling block for some, but maybe some of the more noble-minded, they they thought about the passage from Isaiah. You know, it talks about how the Messiah would be a compassionate man, that a bruised reed he would not break, that a smoldering candle he wouldn't put out. They go, okay, okay. It's not what I would have done, but I accept it. But then you have this And the intended reader would have been right with the disciples, doubting that the Messiah could or would do anything in this situation. Because the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew 14 would have been seen as something very unique and very special to the Israelite readers. 
But to understand why it's special, I want you to turn to Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25. And we're going to be in verse 6. And as you're turning there, think about what Isaiah is all about. At the very beginning, we're told that Isaiah gets this vision from the Lord about what's going to happen to Israel, uh, excuse me, to um, Judah and Jerusalem, is how it specifically worded. And we find out that it's a lot of bad things. It's just things are not going to go well for Judah and Jerusalem. But you get to just as good. Isaiah 25. We're going to be starting in verse 6. So there's a lot of bad things coming for Israel, is what Isaiah is saying. And then you come to verse or chapter 24, and he says, But hey, I want you to know there's going to be a rest of, We're going to have restored fellowship. It's not all bad. I'm not going to completely wipe you out. There is a future uh, good news. And then we come to verse tw- or chapter 25, and God promises that one day he's going to swallow up death forever. So starting in verse 6, we read, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth for the Lord has spoken. It's painting this picture that the Messiah is promised to have this amazing banquet with Israel in Jerusalem. In fact, one verse earlier in verse 5, we read that the Messiah will subdue the noise of the foreigners. And, and that sounds that sounds like this feast is something just for Israel. It's like you have all the foreigners out there, and the Messiah is going to silence them. And then we have this banquet. Uh, that's a superficial reading. Like, like yes, I can understand how they had that, but if, if they had just actually read six and, verses 6 and 7, they would have seen that Jesus removes the veil from all the peoples, the covering of that was covering all the nations. Uh, so obviously this wasn't intended just to be an exclusion thing. But they definitely understood that in Matthew chapter 14, this feast that Jesus has, where he provides supernaturally uh, enough food for all 5,000 people, was this beautiful look into the Messianic banquet that had been promised in Isaiah. But, instead of having this doubt proven true, this doubt that says this is something unique to the Israelites only, we instead see that Jesus feeds the people. And that is Jesus' overflowing provision. Uh, Back in Matthew 15, verse 35, it says, In directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowd, and they all ate and were all satisfied. They took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Jesus feeds them all. He does it in the exact same way uh, that he cared for the Jewish crowd. Remember that after he feeds the Jewish crowd, what was the response of the people? What was the response of the disciples? Do I remember? They were, they were ready to force him to be king. Like Jesus had to forcibly say, no, 
time to disperse. He sends away the disciples first, then he disperses the crowds. They were ready to make him king. They knew that this event was a picture of things to come. And then Jesus takes, takes this exact same picture of the Messianic, Messianic banquet, and he has it with the Gentile crowd, demonstrating that the church of God is going to be something special. It is not going to be Herod's temple, where everyone is split into their own unique groups. You have the men, who are most privileged, the Israelite men. Then you have the Israelite women, who, that's just okay, because they're Israelites. And then you have everyone else. That was not what was intended. Instead, Jesus shows all people, men and women, are going to be united in his church. Now, while we have the entirety of Scripture to look at, uh, we can read passages like Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Uh, it says there's one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Uh, Romans 10, 12, and 13, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Uh, Colossians 3, 11, uh, there is no slave or free, barbarian, Scythian, but Christ is in all. Uh, Christ is all and in all. And I, I summarize those. because uh, We can look at these passages and we can see that God absolutely intends for there to be absolute unity in his church. A church made of every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. But to the readers of Matthew, this may have been one of, if not the only, New Testament book that they had to read at this time. It depends on when Matthew was written. And even after it was written, uh, it's, it's possible there wasn't a wide circulation for everyone. So this may have been it. This may have been the only one that they had access to. And God wants there to be no question in the reader's mind, what he intends for his church. That he's the Messiah of all equally. And I want you to notice, we, we know that he is the Messiah of all equally. This isn't just like we're kind of tagged on at the end here, like, okay, you kind of get to be here. We know he's equal because God equally met the needs of both of them. In Matthew chapter 15, it's not that God provided enough food to make sure that they didn't pass out on the way. You know, everyone gets, like, a little baby fish. It's enough to keep you going. It's not that God provided enough food for everyone to be exactly satisfied. No leftovers. That was perfect. No, God super abundantly met their need in both cases. Now, some people do look at the number of baskets, and they say, oh, well, the, the Jewish people had 12 baskets. That must mean 12 tribes of Israel. And the Gentiles had seven, and seven is often used in the Bible for perfection. Just, just stop. <laughs> uh, I, I only mention this because I want you all to be aware, it's easy to miss the forest for the trees. Have you all heard this saying? I understand I use archaic phrase sometimes. Okay, my, my wife gives me a hard time about this too. Uh, she's, she's like, Matt, I, I don't know where you get these Sardinisms. Uh, but there's a saying, you're missing the forest for the trees, son. And what it means is you're so focused on this one tiny thing that you're missing the fact that you're in a forest. A lot of people, they try to look for every single allegory in the Bible. And, and look, I am glad that there are people who diligently study God's Word. But don't miss the forest for the trees. The number isn't the important part of this passage. The important part of this passage is Jesus is showing that He is abundantly meeting their needs because He is the Messiah of all. So how can we apply this passage to our lives? Well, first and foremost, this passage, it should have you asking, 
if you are responding correctly to Messiah. The Gentiles saw the works Jesus did, and their response was to glorify the one true God. You know, we live in a time and place of unparalleled blessings. It, it boggles my mind. Like, even today, in modern society, we uniquely live in a place of unparalleled blessings. The fact that I can, at any given point in my life, walk probably 10 yards and find fresh, safe water to drink is mind-boggling. It is a privilege that most people to this day don't have. The fact that I can find safe food to eat, not just like local crops, but I, I can get fresh fish. I can have sushi. And I don't live anywhere near an ocean. Our access to health care, our freedom of religion, it is mind-boggling how much God has blessed us. And yet, the Gentiles in Matthew 15, who didn't have access to any of these things that we take for granted every day, they saw the works of God and their response was to properly glorify Him. And make no mistake, you say, well, of course they did. Of course they did. They got to see firsthand Jesus healing people. Guys, every one of you holding a Bible right now or using the Bible app on your phone, you have far more proof of the mighty power of God than anyone in Matthew 15 did. And your response should be absolutely to glorify Him. And I admit that it's, it's easy for me to look down on the disciples for forgetting what a powerful God they serve. But how often in our own lives do we do this? I mean, I know I do it a lot. It's a really easy thing to fall into the mindset where I forget the provisions of God, especially when I'm in a trial. You know, my, my default response when something bad happens to me is to, for me to go, okay, what do I, Matthew, need to do to fix my situation because I'm the one that needs to fix it? That's not true. I, frankly, I, I'm the one of the least qualified people to fix my problems. Instead, I should be turning to God and remembering that we serve a mighty God. You know, Psalm 97 and, and Nahum 1, they're both amazing passages that describe the awesome power of God. It talks about how God's mere presence uh, causes the mountains to melt before Him like wax. And yet, I don't treat Him like He's that powerful at all times. So that's the, that's the first thing. I want you to be thinking, are you treating God in a manner that is appropriate to His power? When trials come our way, do you respond in true worship? Trusting that He will accomplish His will to be done in your life. And guys, I, I want to warn you. If you pray to God, God, please let your will be done in my life. You better hold on tight. Because God's going to answer that prayer. You pray to God, please give me patience with my siblings. God is going to give you ample opportunity to have patience with your siblings. Finally, one last application I want you all to get from this passage is to have a deeper trust in God, knowing that He's not just going to meet your needs, He's going to meet your needs super abundantly. And, and, and that doesn't mean just 
say that he's going to give you health, wealth, and prosperity. Okay? The, the people that Jesus healed, do you think they're still alive today? Any, any of those people? The thousands and thousands and thousands of people that Jesus healed, do you think any of them are still here? No! They got old! They got sick! They died. Every last one of them. The people, the 9,000 people that were directly numbered in these two feedings, do you think they went home and were hungry again? Yes. Yes, the people that Jesus fed absolutely got hungry again. And statistically speaking, someone among those 9,000 probably faced a point in their life where they were in extreme hunger. It's, it's very likely. The world is imperfect. Sin has made it flawed. Flawed to the point that the Bible tells us that all creation groans under the weight of sin. Now, those flaws in no way mean that God is weak or ineffectual. Right? We serve a mighty God who absolutely and abundantly will provide for our needs. But that doesn't mean he's going to grant our every need. When we are in the midst of our trials, our response should be like what we see here uh, of those in Matthew 15. They were sick. They were suffering from disabilities, from lifelong illnesses, and it caused them to draw near to God. Think about that. Every last one of those people there had come because they were sick or because they were bringing a loved one who was sick who couldn't get there themselves. Their trial caused them to draw near to God. And when they witnessed his power, they glorified him. And I, ask, I, I hope that that is, that is your response as well. When you're in the midst of trials and tribulations, that you respond in faith and glorify God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you that even though we were not a part of your chosen people, in your compassion you made a way for us to be in your kingdom not as second-class citizens, but as equal heirs. Father, I pray for those suffering in the midst of trials here tonight, that we do pray that you would grant them deliverance from those trials, be that the mending of friendships, the conversions of a bully, or physical healing. We pray first and foremost that your will would be played out in our lives. And as we meditate on your steadfast faithfulness and your mighty power, that we would turn to glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name.